heard someone pray in such a way that you knew that they really knew God? You can tell they really know God by their heart that they express in prayer. They seem really dialed into his purposes. Uh, We're not talking about long, flowery, wordy praying. We're talking about having a heart for God that's revealed in how they pray. And, of course, nobody could pray like Jesus. Nobody knew God like Jesus. Jesus, uh, his prayers are not widely recorded in Scripture, but his longest prayer is recorded in John chapter 17. And we're going to spend a few weeks on this prayer and learn from Jesus about God's purposes, not just about how to pray, but about Jesus' heart and the plans that God had and how they unfolded and how Jesus prayed in light of that. This is Jesus' longest recorded prayer in the Scripture. And he prays it openly in the hearing of his disciples. So he prayed much on his own, but this prayer he prayed as part of his teaching of the disciples. In John chapters 13 to 17 is Jesus' final closing teaching to his disciples before he goes to the cross. So he's staring the cross in the face as he prays this prayer. So we'll look at it. Um, there's a little bit of false advertising in your bulletin. We're, we're going to read John 17, 1 through 11, but there's too much to cover there, so we're just going to cover the first five verses. But let's go ahead and look at John chapter 17, verses 1 to 11. John 17, 1 to 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and all and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Let's pray. Father, this prayer of your Son to you, we hear the words, we see the words, we confess the mysteries are too great for us to to fully grasp about the relationship between you, God the Father, and your Son. But I do ask, Father, that you would help us to grasp what you want us to here this morning to apply it to our lives, to grow in our depth of, of amazement about how great your plan of salvation is and how dependent your son was on you and yet how certain he was and confident 
that your plan of salvation was good. And all these centuries later, we see how it's unfolded as you've answered this prayer. So be with us. Help me to make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. May your name be glorified. May, may we understand more about Jesus' heart. And may that shape our own hearts as we approach you in prayer. In Christ's name, amen. So the very first phrase here, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? Could stretch back a few chapters, but the immediate verse right before is in 1633, where Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so it's in that tone of confidence that Jesus prays this prayer. And really, the prayer is not just him asking God for some things, which he does, but it's, it's like a mission report, a mission status report of, of what he had accomplished and what he was getting ready to accomplish. In fact, he's so confident that he speaks of some things as if they've already happened, they haven't yet unfolded. He, he prays this prayer with confidence in God's plan. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, re, he recoils in his humanity at the horror of what he was going to face. The worst possible suffering ever was the suffering of the cross. So he didn't look forward to that part, but he had total confidence that this was God's plan and that he was going to carry it out. Oh, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, symbolic gesture of prayer, and says, Father. So Jesus revealed God as Father. Uh, Jesus, when his disciples said, teach us to pray, he started out with our Father. So God had had some reference to to being called Father in the Old Testament, but he really wasn't known as he was known in Jesus' Jesus' revelation of him as Father. As Son of God, Jesus was devoted to, dependent upon, and took all his direction from the Father. And so we should really value being, knowing God as Father. In fact, J.I. Packer said this. He said, To judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of having God as his Father. And so that is huge for us. If we're in Christ today, we have God as our Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. It is the hour. It's the time, in other words. What time, what hour is he talking about? He's been bringing this up throughout John's gospel. He says the hour has come, and it's the hour of his crucifixion and resurrection. This was the main focus of his mission, the uh, resurrection and, and the crucifixion. And... This is what he was to accomplish in order for people to receive eternal life. So the father and son were not just making this up as they went along. This was his precise, exact plan unfolding exactly as he had planned it. And Jesus' whole life and ministry were precisely according to God's plan. Right down to the timing. The hour has come. The time is here. So the timing was exactly on schedule. In fact... As I said earlier in in John's gospel, Jesus throughout the gospel was saying, I can't do this yet because my hour has not yet come. So he said to his own mother, she said, hey, uh, they were at a wedding feast and she said, they have no wine. He says, I can't, my time has not yet come. I said, I can't just do miracles on demand. Or to his unbelieving brothers, they said, hey, go reveal yourself. Go out to the feast, let everybody see you. He said, I can't do that yet. My time has not yet come. Or uh, he also said, John says that Jesus had not yet gotten arrested, which the uh, religious authorities were many times trying to arrest Jesus. And 
said the reason he didn't get arrested and earlier than he did was his time had not yet come. And then, uh, not long before this prayer, Jesus was sought out by some Greeks. And Jesus said, at last, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So he recognizes now the timing is here. So Jesus is very purpose-driven, including God's exact timing for the carrying out of the events of his plan. That's why even though there's so much about this prayer that we don't understand, uh, like a two-year-old cannot grasp the, the conversation between a mother and father, yet even this gives us much tremendous encouragement. The Father and Son accomplished our salvation precisely according to plan. Even when Jesus, God's Son, took on flesh, took on humanity, our human frailty, in order to identify with us, uh, he lived his life in, in complete trust and confidence in God's plan and purpose. There was not one fragment of his life, his suffering and his death, that was outside of God's plan. And for us, if you're a Christian today, that means that you are in Jesus And that means there's not one fragment of your life, if you're in Christ, that's outside of God's plan. Uh, Truly, he works all things together for your good. Nothing is random. Nothing is wasted. There's absolutely nothing can ultimately, eternally ruin you because God has accomplished his plan perfectly in Jesus. And if you're in him, he's at work in that way in your life. So Jesus... We're only going to look at these first five verses, and the one request he makes in this, the one asking thing in this part of the passage is, glorify your son. Now, that's a a Bible word that we we hear a lot, and we need to ask, what what does it mean? What does glorify mean? Well, in the word glorify is the word glory. And the word glory means, uh, means the worth or the weight or the radiant excellence of something. And so to glorify can have one of two senses. One sense is to add excellence and worth and glory to something that needed more glory. So to add glory, to glorify something. So one day these bodies of ours will be glorified. They're not as glorious as they will be. And you say, thank the Lord, because right now they're getting less and less glorious all the time. And so glory can be adding glory, but it can also mean to glorify means to to praise, to declare or to display the glory of something or someone to praise the excellent worth of something. So Jesus prays, Father, glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And Jesus is asking the Father to show forth the excellence and worth of the Son as the one who accomplishes and who, who provides salvation. The world needs to see that glory and to embrace that glory. Otherwise, they won't trust that Jesus is a Savior. So when he says, glorify your son in his death and resurrection, show the world how excellent Christ is in his sacrifice and his resurrection and how worthy he is to be trusted for salvation. And to glorify him in his resurrection because he had taken a huge step down in shielding and hiding his glory and becoming a human being. And so now, glorify your son, meaning to add glory to his humanness and resurrect him as a resurrected man, as well as restore the glory, as we see in verse 5, that he had before the world was. So all kinds of ways. And so how does the Son glorify the Father? And uh, those are ways the the Father glorifies the Son. 
Jesus will glorify the Father by showing forth the greatness of his wisdom, power, justice, and mercy in gifting his Son in his willingness for a time to de-glorify him so that he could become the sin-bearer, the suffering sin-bearer. Uh, what father ever does that? Every father wants his son, his children to be glorified. We want them to be, excel. Who would ever say, I'm giving over my child to be de-glorified, to work their way down in the world in order that they can suffer? That's what God did. And that makes him look more glorious because he is glorious in his great mercy. The son will glorify the father by showing he is worthy of being trusted and obeyed. Even in the son suffering a shameful death, being forsaken by the father. What child, what parent who really loves his or her child would ever do that? But for our salvation and for the good of the world, he forsook his son on the cross. Whatever that means, we don't understand all of that means. And so he glorif- Jesus glorifies the Father in his resurrection since it shows the redeeming power and mercy of the Father in sending his Son to successfully conquer sin and death forever. So lots of glory, mutual glorification that Jesus is asking for. It's a good thing. And we have to say that because some of us, it might bother. Does it bother you that Jesus would ask the Father to glorify him? Does that sound egotistical? To you that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit would seek glory? Well, we have to understand that they are the most valuable, holy, excellent, good, majestic beings in the universe, and so they deserve its right that they should be glorified according to their worth. That's where we get the word worship from, worth-ship. We worship that which has great value. And so it would be wrong not to, for God to get the glory and for Jesus to ask that The Father glorifies the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father. We glorify those whom we value. We may not call it that. We call it praise, right? So when we appreciate a person for who they are and what they do, it's appropriate and fitting that we praise them. They deserve praise. Uh, So, for example, young folks, wake up. Don't, Don't your parents deserve some praise? There you go. You got it. Uh, Parents, don't your kids deserve some praise? All right. Uh, Husbands, don't your wives deserve praise for putting up with you? Amen. And wives, don't your husbands deserve even like a little teeny weeny little bit of praise? I'm putting the bar down pretty low. So we do that all the time. We do that in all kinds of ways, to musicians, to scientists, to athletes, to all kinds of people who are good at things. So how much more does God deserve glory? That's what we're talking about. He deserves the ultimate glory because he's the ultimate good for the universe. And uh, if you're still suspicious that God is a colossal egomaniac, the cross should shut down those objections because the cross is the greatest shame, the greatest crime ever perpetrated. And God designed it between himself and the Son to be that way. So he designed to be de-glorified. And in that, he gets great glory because of his goodness and his mercy. Jesus deserves to be glorified for laying down his glory and life to save a wretch like me. We sing that, don't we? And hopefully we get that. That's true. And so we shouldn't suspect God of being an egomaniac. He deserves all the glory because he stooped down in the greatest shame ever through his son to rescue wretches like us. Now, verse 2 gets the main focus of Jesus' request for glory. 
he says, I'm praying this, since you have given, Father, you have given me, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. He's saying, glorify the Son that he may glorify you just as you have given him authority over all people in order that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. So what's clear from this passage? Well, one thing is there's a lot of giving going on. Uh, God has the authority to give eternal life to the Son to give eternal life. He gave authority to the Son to give eternal life to people. People don't gain eternal life by their own efforts, by their own deserves, or by religious searching or systems that they come up with or by creating their own spirituality. Um, It comes from God the Father who authorizes His Son to give eternal life. So it's all about God giving eternal life to people who had no hope, no chance, no ability whatsoever to produce eternal life or to earn it on their own. And so to whom does the Son give eternal life? Well, Jesus says in this prayer, to all whom the Father has given Him. From God's perspective, He has already gifted certain people to His Son for Him to give eternal life to. Now, if that causes your brain to explode or implode, that's understandable. But before that happens, and it gets all messy in here, just bask in that truth for a moment. If you are a Christian here today, the reason you are a Christian, the reason that you are saved, is because you were gifted in advance by the Father to the Son. Nothing whatsoever to do with you, everything to do with God's goodness and mercy. He gifted you to His Son. I'm not making this up. That's exactly what Jesus says. Some of you might think you're God's gift to women. I won't ask who those, you, who those are. We'll let the women decide that. But better, we're God's gift to Jesus. It seems like He got kind of a raw deal, though, except that He made us worthy by His death and sacrifice for us. So God took a gift that was not worth giving and invested the very life of His Son in that gift and made us a worthy gift for His Son. All of His doing, not one stretch of ours. So at the same time, John records Jesus' teaching that whoever believes receives eternal life. So it's all of God, and yet uh, and it's, it's, you had to be on the pre-gift list. However, John 3.16, most people's familiar with, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes, God gave His Son in order that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. Or in another place, Jesus said, All the Father gives me shall come to me. That's the certainty from God's side. And yet, or also, And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So that free, open appeal to come to Christ, to receive Him, to believe in Him, At the same time, we know God is sovereign over who comes to him. And we see in this prayer, Jesus will speak uh, later on about those who will believe in him through the words of the apostles. Jesus and the apostles don't explain how to reconcile. We want to try to reconcile God's sovereign grace in salvation and our responsibility to believe and repent. The Bible doesn't ever do that for us. We just do what the scriptures do, and they say both are true. God is sovereign in salvation, And yet, the only thing that keeps us back from believing and receiving Jesus Christ is our sin. 
And so, uh, for now, we just need to know that God was not shocked when you came to Christ. Your friends and relatives may have been, but God was not. Oh, yeah, I already gifted him or her to my son. And that's a glorious truth. So Jesus gets to the heart of the matter of what is eternal life in verse 3. Jesus says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what is this eternal life that Jesus alone has authority to give? Is it just existing forever and ever? Jesus doesn't say that. It's true of everyone. Everyone will exist either in a resurrection to life or resurrection to judgment, Jesus says. So everybody is going to exist forever in one state or another. Uh, At the same time, Jesus doesn't say receiving eternal life exempts one from physical death. So being given eternal life doesn't mean that you get to skip physical death. So what does Jesus say eternal life is? Very clearly he says, eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is having a living, in other words, living, loving, trusting, personal relationship with God. Knowing means personal relationship. It doesn't mean just uh, intellectual acknowledgement of God. In spite of all the anti-God stuff going on in our culture, still 90% of Americans, when you poll them, will say they believe in God. The catch that we don't like as Americans, however, in terms of the Scripture, is Jesus doesn't leave the idea of God for people to backfill with whatever they like to think God is. All kinds of people who are into spirituality may say, oh yeah, I, I like to know God. I have an experience with God. But Jesus doesn't say that God is up for grabs for us to define. If God is left open to our personal preferences and liking, if he's made safe for democracy, revised as needed, if he's just our mascot, he reflects us, that's not the true God. God is revealed alone through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says eternal life is knowing the Father as the one who sent Jesus Christ who reveals the Father. In other words, eternal life is knowing God the Father as he has revealed himself through his Son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is knowing God. The Father is the one who sent Jesus to reveal him and to accomplish redemption for those who would receive him. So that is at the heart of eternal life. And when, as soon as I read that, I've got to ask, do you have eternal life? How do you know? How can you know? In light of Jesus' words, how should we answer this? Well, the answer is not, yes, I know I have eternal life because I'm a good person, because I'm religious, because I'm spiritual. These are answers to not give. Uh, I go to church. My name is on the church database. Well, that might help a little bit. <laughs> Not. Are my parents or grandparents are Christians? No, the answer is I have eternal life because I know God the Father as he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. I have a personal relationship with the living God. In John's gospel, to know Jesus Christ means to believe in him and what he has done that you may have eternal life. To know Jesus Christ, to believe in him, as John writes in this in his first letter, is to have Jesus. So John writes in 1 John, his letter, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. If you have Jesus, you've got his life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have eternal life. It's that simple. So do you have eternal life? How do you know? 
Some might answer, yes, I know I have eternal life because I raised my hand during an invitation when I was five and when I was six and when I was seven and three times when I was nine. Or yes, I have eternal life because I signed a card at a youth camp. Or yes, I have eternal life because I went forward during an altar call. Or because I prayed a prayer that someone led me in or that a radio TV preacher led me in to pray. Or I have done all of these things almost every time they're offered just to make sure my bases are covered. Or because I was baptized. You know, any one of those things could have been a time that you really did receive eternal life. That's quite possible. However, a better answer than looking back to past decision or past response has been, is this. Based upon this text is, if eternal life is knowing Jesus, is do you know him now? Do you have a living, personal relationship with him now? Or do you have a trusting, obedient relationship to him now? We're not talking about perfect faith, perfect trusting fellowship, perfect loving obedience now. We are saying that even when you fail and struggle, where do you go? When you fail and struggle, do you keep turning back to Jesus, repenting toward him, trusting in him, treasuring your relationship with him, longing for him, just as you keep working at any other relationship? So if you know God, if you know Jesus, your life will be transformed. Not perfect, but you can't know somebody without being influenced by them. If you really know someone, you can think of people right now in your life you've known well and they've had tremendous influence in your life. They cannot help but to. If you really know somebody, they will influence you. And so how much more to know the living God through Jesus Christ for that to transform your life? So this is what Jesus means when he says eternal life is to know him. Knowing Jesus can't mean just a temporary checking in, like, you know, on Facebook. Check in, and then that's where I'm good to go. It's an ongoing, um, it can't be just a temporary religious response at some point in time. It's an eternal relationship that begins here, relationship that begins now, in this life that continues on to the next. And so Jesus finishes his prayer by saying, I have glorified you on earth, this is verse 4, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus never doubts that he will finish the mission given him by the Father and that he will succeed in accomplishing redemption. He speaks as though the mission was already accomplished even though the most hideous part is yet to come. If Jesus might have abandoned the mission at any point, this would be the time to check out, right? Where he's going to suffer for the sins of the world. But Jesus is faithful, so he can pray, even though he's going to become the suffering sin-bearer forsaken by the Father. Jesus is faithful. He can pray. He was all in for God's plan. He prayed in faith. You know, how often have we told God we would obey and failed? Like this week, several times, if you're normal, yes, but Jesus doesn't pray in despair, for he knows this is God's plan. He knows he's, he's all in for the plan. On, on the other hand, he doesn't say, Father, you know everything, including that the mission is going to be a success, so no need for me to pray. See you in a few days. No, because he is certain of the success of the mission, because he is certain that he is going to carry it out and the Father is going to carry out his part in the mission, and this is the Father's will. He knows this is God's will, and he's, that is the reason he prays this way. So for us, we don't have perfect knowledge of God's will, but we do have his word 
that reveals to us God's perfect plan. And so when we pray, we need our thinking and attitudes continually shaped and refined by the Word of God so that when we pray, we're praying according to God's will, the certainty of praying according to God's Word. That Jesus can say he has accomplished or that he surely will have accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do is the basis for what he prays for the disciples and the church to come. And so we'll see in the, in the succeeding couple of weeks that Jesus prays that God would keep the disciples in his name, that his joy be fulfilled in them, that he will keep them from the evil one, that he will sanctify them in his truth, that they may be one, that they will be with him to see his glory, and more. And you are an answer to Jesus' prayer that he prayed on this particular day right now. That you are here today, that you are in the, the sound of the word of God, that you are part of God's people, is an answer to this prayer. So this is a very effective prayer because he prayed and accomplished God's will and prayed in light of it. In verse 5, Jesus closes again with this request to, to be glorified. Father, now glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Bring me back to being in your presence and restore the glory I had with you in eternity past. And I say, kids, don't you pray this way at home, right? Because unless you are the Son of God, unless you are equal with God and you share the very same nature of God, you can't pray what Jesus prayed. But as the Son of God, he was, he had glory with the Father before he came to this earth in eternity past. And so he's saying, my mission is finished. Re-glorify me with the glory I had originally. And it's good, Jesus says, that he go away and for example, in chapter 16, he tells the disciples they can't imagine it's good for him to leave. But if he doesn't leave, he won't send the Holy Spirit to empower the church to carry out the mission. That's phase two of, of the answer to Jesus' prayer. Christ's mission is that only he could accomplish is complete. His part that only he could do is now finished. But now for phase two in which he works through his disciples to build a community of people who will be with him in glory 